Please pray with me. Lord, we do stand in awe of your amazing plan. And we are so thankful that you included us in your plan and your purpose. You have made the heavens and earth, Lord. You are the maker of heaven and earth. And it's by your great power and outstretched arm. And your name is the Lord Almighty. Great are your purposes and mighty are your deeds. And we bow to your ways. Oh God, we want to keep our eyes fixed on you. For you are the author and perfecter of our faith. And how we marvel that you endured the cross, the suffering, the shame, and for the joy you saw ahead in accomplishing our redemption. Father, how it humbles us that through your suffering you looked ahead to that joy for having us belong to you. Oh God, no other so-called God loves sinners as you do. How we praise your holy name. How we thank you that you love us with an everlasting love. And that in your mercy, you draw us to yourself in loving kindness. How blessed we are to be known and loved by the creator of the universe. Oh God, may these truths spur us on to speak this good news to those we come in contact with. For we want them to know that you are for them. And may those who are standing far off at this time, maybe those that are in doubt, or maybe actually in rebellion, Lord, may they respond to your prompting. Please, God, give them ears to hear your call of come unto me. May they hear this above the lies of the enemy. Father, thank you for giving us ears to hear and for leading us in all your ways. And we especially thank you for leading us and bringing us together at Fellowship Bible Church. How we thank you for using Tim and Jason, Rika, and AJ, to help us become rooted and built up in you, strengthened in our faith. Lord, we praise you for your glorious word and how we want it to, how we want it to remain living and active in us. God, we proclaim that your name is a strong and mighty tower, and we run to it, and we are safe as we find your provision and sufficiency. Lord, we thank you that you are sufficient for every situation. And right now, we just want to lift our youth up to you as they are participating in this retreat. Equip Maggie and Hope as they help with the worship team. And work with the speaker, Father. Work in them at this stage in their lives. May they have a strong love for your word and give them a desire to draw closer to you. Please, God, break through any barriers that might be holding them back for anything you have for them. And Lord, how we praise your name. There's so many things we, that you have answered prayer. We've seen your hand at work. Thank you, thank you that you are, have restored David Pasqua. Thank you that he is on the well on the road to recovery because of your healing. We thank you for intervening. Thank you for Daniela's foot being healed, Father. This long journey she has is over. The doctor has released her, and we praise you with her. We praise you that James and Beth Campbell's grandson has been found. And Lord, we thank you for the healing that you've already done in Malia Broderick and all that you are going to do. God, you are our great and powerful God. Nothing is too hard for you. 
So we intercede for these that, might, that need your healing touch. We pray for Brad as he recovers from his surgery. For Walter and Roger as their ongoing healing that they are going through, Lord. That we thank you. You've shown us the measure of healing they have already. And Lord, as several face ongoing health issues, please strengthen them in their inner man. Lord, give them fresh hope and renew their awareness of your presence. I pray this for Helen and Margaret, for Horace and Jeannie, for Jim and Florence, for Daphne and for Richard Steele. And Lord, we lift up Rachel's grandfather to you and ask that the chemotherapy and radiation would be effective in wiping out this cancer, Lord. Please may your healing power be at work. Continue your healing in Tiffany and Toy as they recover from the car accident that they experienced. Father, with confidence, we lift all these needs to you, for you are the great and awesome God. And how thankful we are that you are always at work. Whether we see it or not, we proclaim your purposes are what we desire, and you are always at work fulfilling them. And we proclaim that nothing can thwart your purposes. So God, we rest in your faithfulness, and we acknowledge that all things are from you, through you, and to you. And all praise and glory be given to you, God. All wisdom and honor, all power and strength be unto you, our glorious God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. And thank you, Janice, for leading us. Let's dismiss the kids now to their time of worship upstairs. That is uh, preschool through the fifth grade. Parents, you can send them out if you've already checked them in. Um, and of course, kids are welcome to stay with families in the service, but we also have a time uh, structured for them as well. And you can pick them up upstairs at the end of the service this morning. Thank you for being with us today as we uh, gather to worship our risen Savior, to open the Word, and to uh, mutually encourage and exhort one another to love and good deeds. Um, a few things going on in the life of the church to share with you this morning. Uh, this little bulletin gives you some information about, uh, number one, this weekend, our If Gathering uh, Women's Ministry event. You do need to sign up for that on the Church Center app if you haven't already. Um, we still have a few free spots left. We have 30 free spots, and then the rest you'd have to pay $15 for. So please uh, make that a priority. And uh, then um, next Sunday is our congregational meeting, the 25th of February. And that will be um, uh, 5.30, and that will start in the gym, and we will start with a chili cook-off. And that will be, just to be clear, that's a dinner. You can come, enjoy chili, cornbread, Fritos, all that sort of stuff. But we need some people to enter into that competition. There will be a prize. It's highly sought after, really competitive and stuff. But um, we'd love to have you um, bring your entry into that. You can sign up for that on the Church Center app as well, um, whether you're, you just want to come and bring some chips and cornbread or sides, that sort of stuff, or you want to enter um, a pot of chili in that competition. After that meal will be our uh, twice-a-year special congregational report from elders and ministry leaders. That's where we will update you 
on the state of the church's finances. Um, where, well, we'll update you on some things going on in different ministries from the church. You'll hear from different staff members on specific updates relating to their area of ministry, that sort of thing. So we'd love for you to be there for those uh, presentations um, the evening of uh, Sunday, February 25th. Um, as Janice said, please continue in prayer for our group that is at Ridgehaven. Um, it's a middle school and high school students, along with AJ and Carson and Chris Gade as adult leaders. Um, are, they will return later today. And please pray that God would tomorrow. It's definitely tomorrow. I don't have a kid there. But yeah, they'll come home tomorrow. Um, <clears throat> sorry for the fake news and stuff. Um, <laughs> Our Easter choir starts um, in March, and uh, talk to Jason if you're interested in that. That will be every Wednesday night in March. And then finally, um, in our missions ministry, we have told you the last couple weeks that we will have um, another group going to Romania and Ukraine to serve with our church partners there. Uh, speak to Tom Perry if you're interested in that. There's also on the black table in the back of the building an information sheet that gives you more information about the, the particular dates and what all the, the, um, the trip entails in there. And then finally, um, a month from today is our missions conference, and that will be a Saturday and Sunday event where uh, we're going to hear a lot of uh, old news that maybe some of us have missed over the time or, or different, different things that maybe we, we heard bits and pieces of but didn't get the full story, where we're celebrating uh, stories of what God has done over the long term and, and revisiting some of those stories of God's faithfulness through our church's um, work in global missions, throughout our various partners. We're going to revisit some of those stories and check up on what God is doing now in ministries and missionaries that we have supported over really the last generation and more. And so please join us for that um, Saturday morning and Sunday event. And now if you would turn with me, we'll be in Hebrews chapter 5 and 6. We'll start at the end of Hebrews chapter 5. One of my favorite parables, and it's come up a lot recently in my mind and conversations with others, is the parable of the house on the rock and the house on the sand. It's a parable that probably most of us have heard and are somewhat familiar with that communicates a very central and simple idea. Storms come. That's inevitable. Storms come to those that build their houses and lives on good foundations, and storms come to those who build their houses and lives on faulty foundations. And so as Jesus is telling this story of the house that is built on the rock and the rains came and the winds come and, and they beat against the house and the house stands strong because it's built on the rock. But then there's the house that is built on the sand and the storms come and the house falls because of the lack of foundation. Now, there's so many beautiful applications of that, but as I said, the point is simple. Foundations matter. Foundations are essential. What's interesting about this passage in Hebrews is it makes almost the opposite point and application in that it's not just the foundation that matters, but you have to leave the foundations and go beyond. And so picture a construction project. Let's say you have commissioned a um, contractor to build a house for you. 
And you come out every day, you're so excited, you've planned and saved, you've picked the perfect piece of property, you've, you've picked the right house design, you've had it all drawn up, and you've commissioned this contractor to go and build you a home. You come out every day, and you think, man, he is, he's got his groundwork out there going, he is meticulous, he is careful, and he spends weeks and weeks just, just clearing the ground, making sure everything is perfect before he ever pours, pours cement or anything. And then you see him spend weeks on just building the footers to make sure that when, he, when the cement truck comes, everything's going to be perfect. So weeks clearing the ground, weeks building footers. And then finally you're like, okay, this is getting a little longer than planned, but now the cement truck is here. And you think, okay, the cement truck is here. We're going to actually pour a foundation. We're going to make some progress here. And he finally pours the foundation, and it's level and clear, and then he, he, he levels it once and twice and he just obsesses over it and he watches it carefully and you're like man this is going to be a great foundation it's taken forever we'll get there honey i know you're impatient i know you want to get in the house but listen this is going to be the best foundation ever and then the rains come and and you come out and you're like well i wonder how they're doing in the rain if they're doing anything and the the contractor's like freaking out putting this this tarp over the foundation to make sure that the foundation stays dry and nothing possible happens to the foundation. You're like, well, now you're starting to get a little concerned. Like, that's odd. This dude hadn't done anything but pour a foundation and obsess over it. And do you really have to tarp a foundation? I've never seen that before. And then you, you finally, you build up the courage and you're like, I gotta, I gotta confront this. You come to your contractor and you say, listen, man, I so appreciate your focus on a solid foundation, but at some point we need a house. And, and the summer is gone, and the leaves are changing, and the leaves are starting to fall, and, and when it gets to winter, it's going to get harder, and you see, you see this, this look of, of understanding come across his face. And he's like, oh my goodness, you're so right. I am so sorry. I didn't even think about that. I promise I will make sure that no single leaf falls on your precious foundation. I'll protect it from the leaves that are falling. Let's just keep it tarped all winter. Let's just make sure nothing happens to the foundation because we've got to protect the foundation. And you think, well, gee, I think I'm going to find another contractor because your foundation's immaculate. But at some point, I need a house. Here's what happens in the book of Hebrews today is we see this challenge that, that sort of challenges a lot of our understanding or, or assumptions about what is important in the Christian life and, and doctrine and the beauty of the foundations. We, we are so, so um, clearly taught that the foundations matter, and they do. But here the author of Hebrews just is going to take us in a different direction and say, stop laying the foundation again. And the picture is, is the picture I described. It's actually a picture of somebody coming up and jackhammering up the foundation that was already good and relaying it again and again and again. You don't just lay the foundation. At some point, you've got to get beyond the foundation and build something that someone can live in, something that lasts and matters. So this section of Hebrews, and, and it's a section that extends from the end of chapter 5 into chapter 6. It was interesting, last week I, I really tried to make the case to you that the focus on the high priest in chapter 5, the first part of chapter 5, really needed to draw in the end of chapter 4. 
And so these are just some unfortunate chapter distinctions here. Where really we needed to, to keep 5, 1 through 10 with 4, 14 through 16. And really we've got to keep 6 with 5, 11 and following as well. And so here's, here's the outline for where we're going over the next couple of weeks. First, at the end of chapter 5, we see the challenge of infancy. It's the first place we'll go today. And then from the challenge of infancy, we see the call to growth at the beginning of chapter 6. And then, and then in 4 through 8, is the question that any of you that have studied Hebrews or read Hebrews on your own should be asking and are likely wondering and anticipating, what scenario is 6, 4 through 8 talking about? Because 6, 4 through 8 will say it is, it is impossible to restore a certain category of people to repentance. What is that category of people? What, 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 do we, what do we do with that? But here's how the outline flows together. You have the challenge of infancy in 5, 11 through 14. You have the call to growth, 6, 1 through 3. And then the crisis of apostasy in 6, 4 through 8. Now, next week will be the crisis of apostasy. Those that look like Christians, or, or maybe, perhaps, depending on the interpretation of the, I'm going to leave us sort of open-ended today so we can answer the questions tomorrow, or sorry, next week. But maybe it's those that outwardly look like Christians that aren't, or maybe it's those that are Christians that walk away. Those are the interpretations that we'll have to consider for four through eight. We'll answer that question. We'll, we'll figure that out next week. But in order to prepare for that, we've got to keep the end of five and the beginning of six together. So here's our challenge for today. Number one, infancy. And number two, it's time to grow up. It's time to stop laying the foundation and move on. So let's read the passage, and we'll see what God is saying to us here through the author of Hebrews. About this we have much to say. That's the beginning of our passage, which means we have to back up and say, what is the this that he really wants to talk about? And the this is the guy named Melchizedek, who is one of the most confusing and mysterious figures in Scripture. So here's this section full of all sorts of questions in the book of Hebrews. I told you, 4 through 8 is this question of eternal security, and, and can people be in Christ at one moment and then out of Christ through their lack of obedience? That's the question of 6, 4 through 8. The question of chapter 7 is, who in the world is this Melchizedek guy who's a priest and Jesus is a priest in his order. We don't know who he is. Where did he come from? But here's the problem with infancy, infancy that we see in this passage. The author of Hebrews says, I want to talk about Melchizedek. And it's hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. Verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So the author of Hebrews here wants to, to really talk more deeply about who Melchizedek is and how Melchizedek represents Christ and connects to Christ and he will do that. He'll return to that in chapter 7. But this section is sort of an aside. It would be like if I was preaching a sermon and say, actually, wait, I can't talk about this yet because it's too confusing, so I've got to first 
exhort and encourage you to listen better than you are and issue a warning to sort of wake you up, make you a little uncomfortable in your seat because we can't talk about the hard stuff until you're willing to listen more and engage more. That's the the sort of confrontation that's going on here between the author of Hebrews and his audience. You guys have to perk your ears up, wake up, listen better than you are. He describes them in this passage, in the challenge of intimacy, 5, 11 through 14. He describes them in three different ways. First, they are reluctant listeners. Second, they are permanent students. And third, they are eating like babies. Now, in order to make this more memorable, I really tried to figure out a way to make this more alliteration, and I got most of the way there. So if you can, so I put this on the screen, but if you want to put the other version in your notes, then I came up with lazy listeners instead of reluctant listeners, permanent pupils instead of permanent students. And then the last one, I came up with infant imbibers. But here's the problem. That's a little bit ambiguous. And it sounds a lot like I'm talking about drinking babies, which we're not. That's not the point of that passage. But if you really like alliteration, there it is for you. The point is to say they ate like babies, not that they ate babies. Don't take that away. So if you write that in your notes, make sure you explain what that actually means. Okay, so we'll start here, though, with reluctant listeners in verse 11. Uh, the, The passage says that you have become dull of hearing is the way the ESV translates it. Other um, translations use um, slow to learn or, or some version of that. Literally, the passage is telling you that your ears have become sluggish or lazy or your ears have atrophied or weakened in some way. The point that the author of Hebrews is trying to make is not that the subject matter is too difficult and they're just falling short, though really being well-meaning in their listening. The point he's trying to make is you are reluctant in your listening. You are not giving the listening to my teaching, listening to the word, you're not giving enough effort. And because you're not giving enough effort in your listening, I can't talk about more difficult subjects. The The difficulty here isn't the complexity of the subject matter, but rather the apathy of the listener. The apathy of the listener that causes them to sort of disengage as more difficult subjects are discussed. And so we think about this in a, in a church context. This would be a really risky and difficult situation. Al- Alistair Begg gives a really good illustration, and yes, I still love Alistair Begg. He gives an illustration of the people that are on a plane. And we've all been on a plane as reluctant listeners, as lazy listeners. Because when you get on a plane, there's going to be a flight attendant that that stands up in front of you and gives this whole presentation that they've been highly trained to do that is important, life-saving information that nobody cares about. And and if you were ever in a plane crash, let let me ask you the question, who do you want to be sitting next to in the plane crash? Do you want to be sitting next to the professional traveler who has zoned out that conversation 200 times? Or do you want to be sitting next to the person 
that is, that is a rookie flyer that's like, I'm going to pull out this pamphlet, and I'm going to read everything, and I'm going to memorize it because I'm not dying on this plane. Because how many professional businessmen and women would stand up in the event and they, they can't figure out how their cushion turns into a flotation device and they don't know, they haven't been listening for the 20 years that they've been flying regularly. The fact that you've heard the presentation a hundred times means nothing for your comprehension of the presentation because most of us just sort of zone it out. And what the author of Hebrews is saying to his audience, and he, the warning he's given to us, some Christians are like that. Where you hear things so much that you think, well, I, I got that stuff. I've, I've figured it out. I know what I need to know in order to have eternal security and live the life that I want to live. If that was a challenge in the first century church, brothers and sisters, it's a greater challenge in our day and age of the church. These are people that are not really paying attention and therefore they don't understand. And because they don't understand, they don't really engage in the impact. They aren't really transformed by the beauty. They don't engage their ears enough to really hear and be transformed by all the beauty that is happening. They are permanent students, he says. Teachers know the difference between an apathetic or an oppositional student and a struggling student. Anyone that is taught in any level in a school or in a church or trained in a professional setting, you know the difference between somebody that is apathetic and doesn't want to be there and somebody that is struggling to learn but is, is falling behind in some way. There's a difference, and you approach those people differently. The author of Hebrews, his concern is for people that are content to be permanent students that are content to just hear the same thing, let it go in one ear, out the other, and never grow. He is wanting them to be teachers themselves, but they're still being taught. And what is this, what, how, how does this affect our church culture, affect the way the church operates? Uh, let me tell you, in a modern sense, the way this problem affects the church is that churches and pastors, and Sunday school teachers, and worship leaders, they've got to find ways to better package their stuff. That's what happens in this setting. When, when church members, or Christians, or students are unwilling to learn, what's your approach as a teacher? I'm going to make it more engaging. I'm going to make it more flashy. I'm going to have better slides. I'm going to have better video content. I'm going to, I'm going to sing better songs that, that connect with the emotions with the emotions better. I'm going to try to lift people's emotion through the construction of the song rather than the content of the song. I'm going to try to, to tell funny stories to get people to laugh and be comfortable, and then I'm going to hit them with the truth. I'm going to use clever alliteration like infant and vibers to make you laugh and then make you remember what I'm talking about. There's nothing wrong with some of that. I mean, I do some of that. But an overemphasis on developing these extra means to make the message of the gospel, the message of Christian doctrine, to make it more palatable, to make it more interesting and engaging, often works against us. Because what we do is we reinforce that I'm the professional teacher and you're the professional student. The author of Hebrews is saying, no, no, no. Everyone reading this letter 
including those reading the letter 2,000 years later, ought to become teachers in some way. That's what he's telling you in verse 12. I'll, I'll read it for you. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles. We've got to keep going over the basics because you didn't really get them in the first place. It's all we can talk about. We can't talk about the depth of Melchizedek because you keep sitting yourself, positioning yourself as a permanent student. Every Christian is a disciple. Every Christian that has truly believed in Jesus, let's say every true Christian that has truly received the gospel, been changed by the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, has become a student or a disciple of Jesus. And some grow more rapidly than others. But you have been born again, you're, you're a disciple. And we want people to represent their discipleship by growing into this picture of a disciple. We need that sort of stuff. But we also need to have a pretty simple definition of discipleship that makes sure that we can all recognize our place in the discipleship process. That we are all disciples that are following Jesus, and we are all disciple makers that are discipling and urging others towards Jesus. So let's just try on this simple definition of discipleship for size. Let's think of discipleship simply as intentionally loving another person to Jesus. Mark Dever sort of first uh, created that um, he was the first one I heard that used that definition, but intentionally loving and leading someone towards Jesus. How can I, in some way, take somebody that I know and move them closer to Jesus? Now, in, in what he means in 512 by teachers is, is different for a lot of us. When, when I say, and the author of Hebrews says, every one of you ought to be teachers, what I mean is every one of us ought to be able to point someone closer to Jesus, to love someone enough, intentionally enough, to move someone in their Christian life to go deeper and farther in Jesus. For some of you, that will look like deep scriptural study. And then you're going to be, you're going to be a, a, a lay person, an elder that's preaching a sermon, or you're going to be a Sunday school teacher that is teaching in-depth in um, lessons from the Word of God. You're going to be leading your small group in in-depth studies. So that's going to be a, a, an Eric Smith or Harold Baker, people like that. We have them in our church. For others, that, that's going to be somebody that just is moving someone, intentionally loving someone. You're not the in-depth Bible teacher, but you're somebody that is going to be intentionally serving. For some, it's going to be the, the prayer leaders, like what Janice did today, connecting with God before other people and saying, Here's, you can follow me, you can learn from my example of how I pray, and just follow me as I follow Christ and pray. We have great men and women in our church like that. And so sometimes you'll, you're, you're gifting in being someone that is going to minister to and direct others will result in some notoriety in the church. But for most of us, it won't. Most people are not ever going to be on the stage leading hundreds of people in a Bible study or a prayer or a worship song, and that's okay. But every Christian needs to aspire to teaching someone, discipling someone, moving someone into a greater sense of awareness and understanding of the Bible and obedience to Jesus. So don't be a permanent student. Aspire to be a teacher. The third picture he gives us 
after reluctant listener, permanent student. This is the most extreme example. He says, you are eating like babies. The second half of chapter 12, he says, you need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, who have those, those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. I think of the image of going to the finest steakhouse you can imagine and thinking, boy, this is a once-in-a-lifetime meal. It's a beautiful setting. This is going to be a perfectly cooked steak and a good, a good cut of meat, a well-seasoned, well-prepared piece of meat. And you're with somebody and you're like, aren't you so excited about this? And the person looks at the menu and says, I'd like a kid's menu, please. Because what I really want is chicken nuggets and macaroni and cheese. That's, I just got, I got this crate. You can have your, your ribeye over here, but I need some chicken nuggets and macaroni and cheese. Let me tell you something. That comparison is not shocking enough for what the author of Hebrews is doing. It's far more shocking than that. He says, you're drinking milk. Let me tell you something about the first century. They were not drinking milk out of cups or out of baby bottles. He says, you are still breastfeeding when you should be eating the steak. It's a shocking, it's an uncomfortable message to tell adults, stop nursing, eat solid food. But that is exactly what he's saying. When he's saying you are drinking milk in the first century, that was only meant breastfeeding. And so stop that, grow up. Some churches, unfortunately, have to lower the standards. And it's a temptation for all churches to lower the standards, lower the approach in order to engage people that want to keep eating like babies, that want to keep getting just the, just the little nugget of what, what God says in His Word, just one little simple thing that I can use, that I can apply and there's beauty in application. There's beauty in simplicity in preaching. But sometimes when we overemphasize that, we leave people not with a desire to grow and learn and go deeper, but with a desire to just keep drinking the milk that they're used to and not ever encourage them to develop. Think about how disheartening and how disappointed it is to see someone with some level of physical developmental disorder and you think with such sympathy and care and concern towards that that family that has the child that has this developmental disorder or think of someone that has um, has a developmental a, a social developmental disorder or a learning developmental disorder but then do we think with such concern care and purpose for those that have a spiritual developmental disorder where they were once really excited about Jesus, and they truly believed, and maybe there was a real change. But then they just stayed there, and they stayed stuck in that same place without real growth. That is the concern that the author of Hebrews is bringing us, a malnourished Christian, someone who never could actually consume a balanced diet because they're not eating solid food. One of the um, resources I read was from Kent Hughes, who quoted um, a passage that just really stuck out to me from a history of uh, the Great Awakening. And he said, one of the interesting byproducts of the Great Awakening is that there was a renewed interest 
in shorthand. Nobody writes in shorthand anymore. It's 2024. Some of you don't even know what shorthand is. I, I, don't, I mean, I've never written in shorthand. I couldn't read shorthand. But in both America and Great Britain, during the Great Awakening, that's when shorthand really took off, historically. Why? Because people wanted to learn. People wanted to go out into the countryside and hear these preachers that were delivering gospel-centered messages with, with depth and, and, and delivering the scriptures, and they wanted to get as much as they could that they could go back and use and reflect on and study. And so they couldn't write fast enough in normal penmanship, so they took up shorthand so they could take better sermon notes. And it's a picture that probably most of us have been in a position where as a new Christian, as a young Christian, you were so excited about growing in your understanding about Jesus. You just wanted to read. You wanted to learn. You wanted to go to church. You wanted to go to that youth camp and learn more because you were excited. I hope you have a moment that you can look back and say, I was excited. But inevitably, that excitement sort of ebbs and flows throughout your walk and your growth in Christ. But, but what's happening here is that the excitement just goes away and you just sort of keep on coasting and floating. And for what so many of us need to do is find a way to practically, in a disciplined way, rekindle that excitement by just re-engaging in the scriptures, re-engaging in prayer, re-engaging in Christian worship in the community of the saints. Um, the author of Hebrews gives us a really clear, really clear cure here at the end of chapter 5 in verses 11, 14. The biggest problem in verse 11 is that you're not listening. So the first part of the clear is just, the first part of the cure is just listen better. The second part of the cure is in verse 14. Practice. Solid food is for the mature who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Listen better and put it into practice. If you listen, you might be excited, you might be challenged, you might be encouraged. If you don't do anything with what you heard, then ultimately you're going to forget it. But if you can find a way to take the word of God that is heard and put it into practice, then that's learning, that's application, that is growth. So first, he describes the problem of spiritual infancy, which we've seen, and now he calls us to grow. Uh, will be chapter 6 now, verses 1 through 3. And I hope you do bring your Bibles and you engage in your own uh, ver uh, copy of God's Word. Um, and that's why we don't put them on the screen, because we want you to have your own copy of God's Word in front of you. Um, Therefore, let us leave the doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instruction about washing, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do, if God permits. This passage is another one that, that brings us some challenges because there's a list of six really beautiful application points here. It's a really beautiful list. And in fact, if you look back and, and you research different commentaries, you can see that there's a, there's a possibility and a likelihood that in some sense 
this six-part list in verses 1 and 2 was some sort of uh, early Christian catechism or spiritual growth outline where there were these six concepts that were called the foundations that needed to be known and grasped in order to follow Jesus. And these six points are beautiful, and they're simple. And they're a great starting point. And the the six points are, in verse 1, repentance, number 1, faith, number 2, washings, number 3, number 4, laying on of hands, and then number 5, numbers 5 and 6 are in verse 2, resurrection and eternal judgment. And it would be very tempting to just say, that's the application for the sermon. That's the teaching point. We need to know these six things. We need to know this doctrine and embrace this doctrine. And I am going to go through the six points in a second. But actually, what the the author of Hebrews is doing is saying, you can't just teach those six things over and over and over. And so every part of me because of my love for those six points, wants to sit here and and reflect and embrace those six things because I think they're so beautiful. And the author of Hebrews is saying, you can't keep polishing that foundation. Those are things you need to know, you need to embrace, and at a certain point, we as Christians have to love each other enough to say, yes, those foundations are beautiful. These six points of the basics, they're beautiful. We need to remember them, but we need to remember them well enough that we don't have to go back and rehearse them every single time we're together. We need to love those six truths so much that we can go on to other truths because we've mastered those. Because we know repentance is so important to the Christian life. But we can't just talk about repentance every single week. Or that's just going to mean that we're, keep do- we're going to keep doing the same sins every week and having to repent every single Sunday. We've got to grow beyond that. There needs to be progress. There needs to be more construction than just the foundation. Now, let's be clear here. Leaving is not abandoning. So verse 1 says, let us leave the elementary doctrines. He doesn't mean abandon. He means Let's diversify our Christian teaching and doctrine to be about more than just these six beautiful foundational truths. Let's go beyond them. Let's not neglect them. Let's not abandon them. But let's learn them and go beyond them. The first is repentance. Repentance is is simple. In this passage, um, he calls it repentance from dead works. The, The better translation is actually repentance from acts that lead to death. These are, these are not just works that are dead, but the works that you are doing without Christ that will lead you towards death. Therefore, change. Therefore, repent. And, and repentance, simply, the simple definition of repentance is to turn, to be going one way, all of my works, everything I'm doing, my priorities, everything that I'm devoting my life to is leading me towards death. And to repent, I physically turn and go the opposite direction, which is life, right? I leave the acts that lead to death, and I change, and I don't just, repentance is not just saying I'm sorry and having a a little bit of remorse. It is godly grief that leads to repentance. I, I hate my sin. I hate the results of my sin. I hate the effects of my sin on myself and other people, and on God, because I am sinning against God first and foremost, so I'm gonna turn around and go the other way. Repentance then leads to faith. Faith 
is a part of repentance because repentance results in real faith. And the evangelistic preaching of the early church is all about repent and believe. That's the message you hear all through the book of Acts. Repent and believe. And so repentance leads to faith because we believe. And we trust that God is who he says he is, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, is risen from the dead, and he has paid the penalty for the sins of all who believe. And because of his resurrection, he's now resurrected for our life, so that we too might have life and life eternal. That faith is such an important theme of this book. And we got to recognize the beauty of it. We must repent. We must respond in faith to the message of the gospel. Two beautiful points. Third point in this list is washings. Now, it's most likely making a reference point to, remember, these are Jewish believers, right? These are people that have a strong background in the Old Covenant and Jewish law. Okay, and so the washings here likely refers to the old ritualistic washings of the Old Covenant and the way that Christian discipleship and Christian teaching moves people out of the ritualistic washings and into the beauty of baptism. And so today, we celebrated with a family and we celebrated with a young sister in Christ who was convinced of of what Christ had done in her life and so convinced that she had seen the fruit already being born in her life, and her parents could speak to the fruit already being born in her life, and said, I don't need the ritualistic washings of an old covenant system. Rather, in baptism, I am demonstrating that once for all, my sins have been washed away. My sins have been fully atoned for. And so most likely for a Jewish background believer, they would hear this and they would recognize this this six-point list as the beauty of baptism that leads you into a Christian life of faith and leaves behind the old covenant system of the various washings. And then the laying on of hands, number four. Laying on of hands throughout the New Testament had all number of functions. People had hands laid on them for blessing, for healing, for commissioning into ministry and service. Laying on of hands resulted in the receiving of the Holy Spirit. Laying on of hands resulted in receiving spiritual gifts. All of those pictures are there for the New Testament church. So the laying on of hands most likely is early in the Christian life here. You repent, you believe through faith, you are baptized, and then the church comes around you, lays hands on you, and commissions you into your Christian life. Now go. Walk in faith. Walk in obedience. Another starting point. All of these foundations are starting points that should be well-known and well-received by the church. Fifth, resurrection. The resurrection of the dead is an important basic doctrine. If you are a Christian, I hope you believe and you know that you will live forever. And, And the resurrection of the dead is the resurrection of the just and the unjust. That everyone lives forever in in one of two locations. And the message of the gospel is that we, who are not perfect, we who are sinners ourselves, because of our repentance and faith in the offer of Jesus, we experience the resurrection of the dead as resurrection into life. The future physical um, resurrection in which Jesus forms his new Um, heavens and the new earth and his eternal kingdom. And point six, 
with that comes eternal judgment. The last day. When those who do not believe, who do not repent and believe, they are judged and sent away with weeping and gnashing of teeth. So this is basic Christian doctrine. It's beautiful. And, and like I said, I love these six points, and, and we want to embrace them and continue to embrace them as a church. It's a great starting point. It would be a great uh, uh, early discipleship curriculum to go through these six points in great depth and beauty. But the author of Hebrews is telling us, you need more. If you're going to truly follow Christ, you need to grow in character. You need to grow in understanding. You need to represent what, what Christ has called his church to in ways that go beyond just the knowledge of these six truths. So what does it look like to leave these things and grow? Well, for the author of Hebrews, it looks like Melchizedek and the, the high priestly office of Jesus and going more in-depth about that. Or it looks like understanding and studying the new covenant. The, the author of Hebrews is about to say, listen, I, I need to quit saying the author of Hebrews says something controversial. Every, everything he says is controversial somehow. Because he says... The old covenant is obsolete. He's going to say that. And when we say that, we're going to need to have our ears perked up and listening so that we understand what it means. So if, if the author of Hebrews is worried about describing Melchizedek, and you guys are too dull of hearing to talk about Melchizedek, imagine how concerned he is about saying the old covenant's obsolete now. That's going to be really controversial in this Jewish background church. He's going to talk about the tabernacle and the sacrifice and how Jesus fulfilled the beauty of the tabernacle. He's going to talk about assurance of faith. He's going to talk about assurance of salvation and, and then walking and, and running the race. All of those things are coming, and that's what the author of Hebrews means by let's leave behind the elementary doctrines. Here's what we need to hear here. Doctrine is so important. Doctrine is beautiful, and it matters, and I guarantee you, the author of Hebrews does not want anyone to diminish the beauty of the foundational doctrines. But what the author of Hebrews is trying to motivate us toward is to leave behind, grow beyond just the elementary doctrines and discover new fascinating truths about the person and work of Jesus and, and, and be enamored with the person of Jesus and the work of the holy transcendent God beyond just those entry-level basics that define what it means to be a Christian. It's beautiful that we can define what it means to be a Christian and we get to that starting point. But we've got to go beyond that and grow beyond that if we're going to really see Christ glorified through our church and through our lives and our individual families. Because do you want your family to be a family full of permanent students and dull listeners? Or do you want your family to bring honor and glory to the king by teaching others as well, loving others as they live and, and learn to follow Jesus better? We'll apply it in this way with, with three really easy, really practical points. Number one, as we respond to the word of God, Will you consider and reflect on your own listening? When the word of God is preached from this pulpit, whether it's myself or AJ or Jason or an elder or a guest, that requires preparation for the person who is leading us in the study of the word of God. And I'm asking you, will you consider how you as a listener prepare your heart 
prepare your ears, prepare your mind to listen to the word of God. To listen knowing that there's going to be something you, you are called to do afterwards. There's going to be a truth to apply, a, a way to go deeper in following Jesus. Do you prepare to listen? And number two, we don't just listen, we practice. 5.14 says constant practice trains us to eat solid food and not milk. That constant practice, it could be prayer. You don't feel like you're good at prayer? Keep practicing. Come to prayer meeting Wednesday night, Thursday morning with the ladies. Join us in worship and listen to the prayers that are uttered and, and seek to learn to pray more. Study the prayers of Scripture and just pray the prayers of Scripture and through constant practice, you'll see your heart and your, and your comfortability with prayer grow and move. The Word, practice the study of the Word, the reading of the Word. Service, practice Christian service, serving others, feeding the sick, serving the poor, serving those in need, loving those that are hard to love. Loving those that are so frustrating and difficult. Practice it. You'll get better at it. You'll be more used to it if you put yourself out of your comfort zone and practice the Word of God in new ways. Forgive. Some of us need to practice forgiveness and learn what it means to forgive those that have hurt us, who have wounded us. If you never forgive people who are hard to forgive, you're never going to be able to forgive people who are hard to forgive. And you're also not following Jesus. Fast. Take some time. Go deeper. Develop a new, a new um, spiritual discipline, a new spiritual practice. Maybe it's fasting. Maybe it's a different type of prayer. Maybe a different type of Bible study. Do it in community, but put it in practice. And finally, grow. Growth involves intentionality. Listen, this is a place for young believers. I want to make that very clear. If you don't feel like you're a teacher, and you feel like you're a young, immature believer, and you feel like you're being dumped on for being a spiritual infant right now, I do not, I do not want you to walk away feeling like that. I want you to walk away knowing that Christ wants you to go deeper. And Christ wants you to go farther. And, and I want you to as well. And as your pastor, as your brother, I want to see the people I love in this room go deeper and go farther in Jesus. All the hard words, those aren't mine. That's, that's the Bible. I didn't call you babies. That was the Bible, y'all. And you know what? We've all been there. We've all been spiritual infants, and we've all been called to grow. And so the question is, what are we going to do to grow? Are we going to commit to ourselves, or commit ourselves to the Word of God in such a way that we can move out of that infancy and into maturity where Christ is glorified, not just in your faithful life, but in the impact you have on others for His kingdom for his glory. So yeah, the central application is grow up. But the call to grow up is a call of grace. As, as the band comes to lead us in worship again, I want to expand on that call of grace. The Christian life is one of grace-driven effort. And all of those words are important. That we are a people of grace that are here because of Jesus and because of the grace we have shown to Jesus, or that Jesus has shown to us, and we then show grace to others, and we live and we bask in the beauty of that grace and love. 
but we also exert effort in our discipleship, in our following of Jesus, because that grace is a fuel that drives us forward to love Jesus and follow Jesus. I know the world is dark. I know the challenges of the outside world. It is not a mystery to any of us that the world is broken and sinful and dark. And if we are going to survive our Christian life without our faith being shipwrecked, we need each other and we need growth. Infants, infants don't stand strong in the waves that come. If we return to the image that we started with of the house on the rock and the house on the sand, the central point is there. Both houses get storms. You will get storms. You need a strong foundation to weather the storm. But you also need a house. You need more than the foundation. You need to keep growing, keep learning. If, if your Christian knowledge is where it is now, the same place that it was 20 years ago, and you're still polishing that foundation, you're not going to have much of a building to withstand the storm. You need to be constantly growing, constantly learning, constantly serving and following Jesus so that we can withstand together in community the challenges of the world. Let's stand.